Part Two of the Aliens by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. The elliptical golden object darted into swift and eccentric motion. Lacking an object of known size for comparison, there was no scale. The golden ship might have been the size of an autumn leaf, and in fact its maneuvers suggested the heedless tumblings and scurrying of falling foliage. It fluttered in swift turns and somersaults and spinnings. There were weavings like the purposeful feints of boxers not yet come to battle. There were indescribably graceful swoops and loops and curving dashes like some preposterous dance in emptiness. Tane's voice crashed out of a speaker. All even-numbered rockets, he barked. Fire! The skipper roared a countermand, but too late. The crunching, grunting sounds of rockets leaving their launching tubes came before his first syllable was complete. Then there was silence while the skipper gathered breath for a masterpiece of profanity. But Tane snapped. That dance was a sneak-up! The plumie came four miles nearer while we watched. Baird jerked his eyes from watching the plumie. He looked at the master radar. It was faintly blurred with the fading lines of past gyrations, but the golden ship was much nearer the Nicola than it had been. Radar reporting, said Baird sickishly. Mr. Tane is correct. The plumie ship did approach us while it danced. Tane's voice snarled. Reload even numbers with chemical explosive warheads. Then remove atomics from odd numbers and replace with chemicals. The range is too short for atomics. Baird felt curiously divided in his own mind. He disliked Tane very much. Tane was arrogant and suspicious and intolerant even on the Nicola. But Tane had been right twice now. The plumy ship had crept closer by pure trickery, and it was right to remove atomic warheads from the rockets. They had a pure blast radius of ten miles. To destroy the plumy ship within twice that would endanger the Nicola and leave nothing of the plumy to examine afterward. The plumy ship must have seen the rocket flares, but it continued to dance, coming nearer and ever nearer in seemingly heedless and purposeless plungings and spinnings in star-speckled space. But suddenly there were racing, rushing trails of swirling vapor. Half the Nicola's port broadside plunged toward the golden ship. The fraction of a second later the starboard half-dozen chemical explosive rockets swung furiously around the ship's hull and streaked after their brothers. They moved in utterly silent, straight-lined, ravening ferocity toward their target. Baird thought irrelevantly of the vapor trails of an atmosphere liner in the planet's upper air. The ruled line straightness of the first six rockets' course abruptly broke. One of them veered crazily out of control. It shifted to an almost right-angled course. A second swung wildly to the left. A third and fourth and fifth the sixth of the first-line rockets made a great sweeping turn and came hurtling back toward the Nicola. It was like a nightmare. Lunatic, erratic lines of sunlit vapor eeled before the background of all the stars in creation. Then the second half-dozen rockets broke ranks. 
as insanely and irremediably as the first. Tain's voice screamed out of a speaker, hysterical with fury. Detonate! Detonate! They've taken over the rockets and are throwing them back at us! Detonate all rockets! The heavens seemed streaked and laced with lines of expanding smoke. But now one plunging line erupted at its tip. A swelling globe of smoke marked its end. Another blew up, and another. The Nicola's rockets faithfully blew themselves to bits on command from the Nicola's own weapons control. There was nothing else to be done with them. They'd been taken over in flight. They'd been turned and headed back toward their source. They'd have blasted the Nicola to bits but for their premature explosions. There was a peculiar stunned hush all through the Nicola. The only sound that came out of any speaker in the radar room was Tane's voice, high-pitched and raging, mouthing unspeakable hatred for the plumies whom no human being had yet seen. Baird sat tense in the frustrated and deliberate composure of the man who can only be of use while he is sitting still and keeping his head. The vision screen was now a blur of writhing mist, lighted by the sun and torn at by emptiness. There was luminosity where the ships had encountered each other. It was sunshine upon thin smoke. It was like the insanely enlarging head of a newborn comet, whose tail would be formed presently by light pressure. The plumy ship was almost invisible behind the unsubstantial stuff. But Baird regarded his radar screens. Microwaves penetrated the mist of rapidly ionizing gases. Radar to navigation, he said sharply. The plumy ship is still approaching, dancing as before. The skipper said with enormous calm. Any other plumy ships, Mr. Baird? Diane interposed. No sign anywhere. I've been watching. This seems to be the only ship within radar range. We've time to settle with it, then, said the skipper. Mr. Tane, the plumy ship is still approaching. Baird found himself hating the plumies. It was not only that humankind was showing up rather badly at the moment. It was that the plumy ship had refused contact and forced a fight. It was that if the Nicola were destroyed, the plumy would carry news of the existence of humanity and of the tactics which worked to defeat them. The plumies could prepare an irresistible fleet. Humanity could be doomed. But he overheard himself saying bitterly, I wish I'd known this was coming, Diane. I wouldn't have resolved to be strictly official only until we got back to base. Her eyes widened. She looked startled. Then she softened. If you mean that, I wish so too. It looks like they've got us, he admitted unhappily. If they can take our rockets away from us. Then his voice stopped. He said, Hold everything, and pressed the navigation room button. He snapped. Radar to navigation. It appears to take the plumies several seconds to take over a rocket. They have to aim something, a presser or tractor beam most likely, and pick off each rocket separately. Nearly forty seconds was consumed in taking over all twelve of our rockets. At shorter range, with less time available, a rocket might get through. The skipper swore briefly, then, Mr. Tane. When the plumies are near enough, our rockets may strike before they can be taken over. You follow? 
Baird heard Taine's shrill-voiced acknowledgment, in the form of practically chattered orders to his rocket-tube crews. Baird listened, checking the orders against what the situation was as the radar saw it. Haines' voice was almost unhuman, so filled with frantic rage that it cracked as he spoke. But the problem at hand was the fulfillment of all his psychopathic urges. He commanded the starboard side rocket battery to await special orders. Meanwhile, the port side battery would fire two rockets on widely divergent courses, curving to join at the plumy ship. They'd be seized. They were to be detonated, and another port side rocket fired instantly, followed by a second hidden in the rocket tail the first would leave behind, then the starboard side. I'm afraid Tane's our only chance, said Baird reluctantly. If he wins, we'll have time to talk, as other people do who like each other. If it doesn't work— Diane said quietly, Anyhow, I'm glad you wanted me to know. I wanted you to know, too. She smiled at him yearningly. There was the crump, crump of two rockets going out together. Then the radar told what happened. The plumy ship was no more than six miles away, dancing somehow deftly in the light of a yellow sun, with all the cosmos spread out as shining pinpoints of colored light behind it. The radar reported the dash and the death of the two rockets, after their struggle with invisible things that gripped them. They died when they headed reluctantly back to the Nicola, and detonated two miles from their parent ship. The skipper's voice came. Mr. Tane, after your next salvo I shall head for the plumy at full drive to cut down the distance and the time they have to work in. Be ready. The rocket tubes went crump, crump again, with a fifth of a second interval. The radar showed two tiny specks speeding through space toward the weaving, shifting speck which was the plumy. Outside, in emptiness, there was a filmy haze. It was the rocket fumes and exploding gases spreading with incredible speed. It was thin as gossamer. The plumy ship undoubtedly spotted the rockets, but it did not try to turn them. It somehow seized them and deflected them, and darted past them toward the Nicola. "'They see the trick,' said Diane, dry-throated. "'If they can get in close enough, they can turn it against us.' There were noises inside the Nicola now. Tane fairly howled an order. There were yells of defiance and excitement. There were more of those inadequate noises as rockets went out. Every tube on the starboard side emptied itself in a series of savage grunts, and the Nicola's magnetronic drive roared at full flux density. The two ships were less than a mile apart when the Nicola let go her full double broadside of missiles, and then it seemed that the plumy ship was doomed. There were simply too many rockets to be seized and handled before at least one struck. But there was a new condition. The plumy ship weaved and dodged its way through them. The new condition was that the rockets were just beginning their run. They had not achieved the terrific velocity that would accumulate in ten miles of no gravity. They were new-launched, loggy, clumsy not the streaking, flashing death and destruction they would become with thirty more seconds of acceleration. So the plumy ship dodged them with a skill and daring past relief. 
With an incredible agility it got inside them, nearer to the Nicola than they, and then it hurled itself at the human ships as if bent upon a suicidal crash which would destroy both ships together. But Baird in the radar room and the skipper in navigation knew that it would plunge brilliantly past at the last instant. And then they knew that it would not, because very suddenly and very abruptly there was something the matter with the plumie ship. The life went out of it. It ceased to accelerate or decelerate. It ceased to steer. It began to turn slowly on an axis somewhere amidships. Its nose swung to one side, with no change in the direction of its motion. It floated onward. It was broadside to its line of travel. It continued to turn. It hurtled stern first toward the Nicola. It did not swerve. It did not dance. It was a lifeless hulk, a derelict in space. And it would hit the Nicola amidships with no possible result but destruction for both vessels. The Nicola's skipper bellowed orders as if shouting would somehow give them more effect. The magnetotronic drive roared. He demanded a miracle of it, and he almost got one. The drive strained its thrust members. It hopelessly overloaded its coils. The Nicola's cobalt steel hull became more than saturated with the drive field, and it leaped madly upon an evasion course. And it very nearly got away. It was swinging clear when the plumie ship drifted within fathoms. It was turning aside when the plumie ship was within yards, and it was almost safe when the golden hull of the plumie, shadowed now by the Nicola itself, barely scraped a side keel. There was a touch, seemingly deliberate and gentle, but the Nicola shuddered horribly. Then the vision screens flared with such a light as might herald the crack of doom. There was a brightness greater than the brilliance of the sun. And then there was a wrenching, heaving shock. Then there was blackness. Baird was flung across the radar room, and Diane cried out, and he careened against a wall and heard glass shatter. He called, Diane! He clutched crazily at anything and called her name again. The Nicola's internal gravity was cut off, and his head spun, and he heard collision doors closing everywhere. But before they closed completely, he heard the rasping sound of giant arcs leaping in the engine room. Then there was silence. "'Diane!' cried Baird fiercely. "'Diane!' "'I'm here,' she panted. "'I'm dizzy, but I think I'm all right.' The battery-powered emergency light came on. It was faint, but he saw her clinging to a bank of instruments where she'd been thrown by the collision. He moved to go to her and found himself floating in midair. But he drifted to a side wall and worked his way to her. She clung to him, shivering. "'I think,' she said unsteadily, "'that we're going to die, aren't we?' "'We'll see,' he told her. "'Hold on to me.' Guided by the emergency light, he scrambled to the bank of communicator buttons. What had been the floor was now a side wall. He climbed it and thumbed the navigation room switch. "'Radar room reporting,' he said curtly. 
Power out, gravity off, no reports from outside from power failure, no great physical damage. He began to hear other voices. There had never been an actual space collision in the memory of man, but reports came crisply, and the cut-in speakers in the radar room repeated them. Ship gravity was out all over the ship. Emergency lights were functioning, and were all the lights there were. There was a slight unexplained gravity drift toward what had been the ship's port side, but damage control reported no loss of pressure in the Nicola's inner hull, though four areas between inner and outer hulls had lost air pressure to space. "'Mr. Baird,' rasped the skipper, "'we're blind. Forget everything else and give us eyes to see with.' "'We'll try battery power to the vision plates,' Baird told Diane. No full resolution, but better than nothing. They worked together, feverishly. They were dizzy. Something close to nausea came upon them from pure giddiness. What had been the floor was now a wall, and they had to climb to reach the instruments that had been on a wall and now were on the ceiling. But their weight was ounces only. Baird said abruptly, I know what's the matter. We're spinning. The whole ship's spinning. That's why we're giddy and why we have even a trace of weight. Centrifugal force. Ready for the current? There was a tiny click, and the battery light dimmed, but a vision screen lighted faintly. The stars it showed were moving specks of light. The sun passed deliberately across the screen. Baird switched to other outside scanners. There was power for only one screen at a time but he saw the starkly impossible. He pressed the navigation room button. "'Radar room reporting,' he said urgently. "'The plumy ship is fast to us in contact with our hull. Both ships are spinning together.' He was trying yet other scanners as he spoke, and now he said, "'Got it. There are no lines connecting us to the plumy, but it looks—yes—' That flash when the ships came together was a flashover of high potential. We're welded to them along twenty feet of our hull. The skipper. Damnation! Any sign of intention to board us? Not yet, sir. Tane burst in, his voice high-pitched and thick with hatred. Damage control party's attention! Arm yourselves and assemble at starboard airlock. Rocket crews get into suits and prepare to board this plumbing. Countermand, bellowed the skipper from the speaker beside Baird's ear. Those orders are cancelled. Damn it, if we were successfully boarded, we'd blow ourselves to bits. Those are our orders. Do you think the plumies would let their ship be taken? And wouldn't we blow up with them? Mr. Tane, you will take no offensive action without specific orders. Defensive action is another matter. Mr. Baird. I consider this welding business pure accident. No one would be mad enough to plan it. You watch the plumies and keep me informed." His voice ceased, and Baird had again the frustrating duty of remaining still and keeping his head while other men engaged in physical activity. He helped Diane to a chair which was fastened to the floor which was now a wall and she wedged herself fast and began a review of what each of the outside scanners reported. Baird called for more batteries. 
Power for the radar and visions were more important than anything else just then. If there were more plumy ships... Electricians half-floated, half-dragged extra batteries to the radar room. Baird hooked them in. The universe outside the ship again appeared filled with brilliantly colored dots of light which were stars. More satisfying, the globe scanners again reported no new objects anywhere. Nothing new within a quarter million miles. A half million. Later, Baird reported, Radar reports no strange objects within a million miles of the Nicola, sir. Except the ship we're welded to. But you are doing very well. However, microphones say there is movement inside the plumie. Diane beckoned for Baird's attention to a screen, which Baird had examined before. Now he stiffened and motioned for her to report. We've a scanner, sir, said Diane, which faces what looks like a port in the plumie ship. There's a figure at the port. I can't make out details, but it's making motions facing us. Give me the picture, snapped the skipper. Diane obeyed. It was the merest slip of a switch. Then her eyes went back to the spherical sweep scanners, which reported the bearing and distance to every solid object within their range. She set up two instruments which would measure the angle, bearing, and distance of the two planets, now on this side of the sun, the gas giant and the oxygen world to sunward. Their orbital speeds and distances were known. The position, course, and speed of the Nicola could be computed from any two observations on them. Diane had returned to the utterly necessary routine of the radar room, which was the nerve center of the ship, gathering all information needed for navigation in space. The fact that there had been a collision, that the Nicola's engines were melted to unlovely scrap, that the plumie ship was now welded irremovably to a side keel, and that a plumie was signaling to humans while both ships were spinning through space toward an unknown destination, these things did not affect the obligations of the radar room. Baird got other images of the plumie ship into sharp focus. So near, the scanners required adjustment for precision. "'Take a look at this,' he said wryly. She looked. The view was of the plumie as welded fast to the Nicola. The welding was itself an extraordinary result of the plumie's battle tactics. Tractor and presser beams were known to men, of course, but human beings used them only under very special conditions. Their operation involved the building up of terrific static charges. Unless a tractor beam generator could be grounded to the object it was to pull, it tended to emit lightning bolts at unpredictable intervals and in entirely random directions, so men didn't use them. Obviously, the plumies did. They'd handled the Nicola's rockets with beams which charged the golden ship to billions of volts. And when the silicon-bronze plumie ship touched the cobalt-steel Nicola, why, that charge had to be shared. It must have been the most spectacular of all artificial electric flames. Part of the Nicola's hull was vaporized, and undoubtedly part of the plumie. But the unvaporized surfaces were molten and in contact, and they stuck. For a good twenty feet the two ships were united by the most perfect of vacuum wells. The wholly dissimilar hulls formed a space catamaran 
with a sort of valley between their bulks. Spinning deliberately, as the United Ships did, sometimes the sun shone brightly into that valley, and sometimes it was filled with the blackness of the pit. While Diane looked, a round door revolved in the side of the plumy ship. As Diane caught her breath, Baird reported crisply. At his first words, Tane burst into raging commands for men to follow him through the Nicola's airlock and fight a boarding party of plumies in empty space. The skipper very savagely ordered him to be quiet. End of Part 2